good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I hope you've had a chance to check in on the program this morning, which was great, uh, very informative and um, insightful. Um, everybody's got lunch, who wants it? That's good. So I'm John Cannon, I teach at the law school, and my job uh, today is, is a, um, a pleasurable one to int introduce my good friend, Avi Garbo, who is um, a prominent member of the environmental law and policy community, loosely defined, and has been for, for many years. Uh, Avi is a graduate of this law school. Um, he is a, a, a classmate, a law classmate, and um, contemporary of Jim Ryan, just to make all the connections that might be relevant or interesting to folks here. Um, I want to say to those of you who are in the, in the state of being law students that he prepared himself for his distinguished career by serving on the Velge uh, Review. Um, and he also, this was before I think VELF was in existence, but he also was among the group that spearheaded the recycling program at the law school so that the nice bins that you see now <laughs> that are uh, <coughs> managed by facilities were in obvious days uh, put out by law students and picked up and emptied by them or taken them to, uh, taken to the appropriate place. So he was a pioneer in, in developing environmental programs at the law school. Um, and now he's come back to, to enrich the program that we have now. So he has gone on uh, from, from his law school days to have a distinguished career in environmental law and now beyond. He was deputy general counsel of, of EPA for a number of years and then general counsel during the Obama, Obama administration and in that capacity he uh, <coughs> did work on a whole range of rulemakings and other legal uh, enterprises that the agency w was involved in, but particularly I will say he was instrumental in helping the agency craft the um, landmark climate change initiatives that the agency took took on during the Obama administration and which are now unfortunately under assault, but which laid the groundwork, I think, for uh, a reasonable and effective climate change policy under the existing Clean Air Act, and maybe we'll come back to that um, in some, at some future date. Anyway, he, he performed um, distinguished service at EPA, and he left EPA as the longest serving general counsel having served for three and a half years. Um, it doesn't sound long, but in general, <laughs> in general counsel years, that's really a long time. Um, I have a word about that, really, because I, you know, I was general counsel of EPA for a while, exactly <coughs> three years and one week, I think. And when I left, I was the longest serving general counsel. And my uh, good friend and successor, Scott Fulton, became the longest serving general counsel after I left. I think he added another couple of weeks <laughs> just to make the claim. And now Avi, having succeeded Scott, is the longest serving general counsel. I say that just to, to, to offer you the opportunity in your future career 
to, um, to best us all, and I know <laughs> one of you will, or may. Um, so after, after his EPA service, Avi went to a law firm in Washington, D.C., Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, which has a distinguished environmental law practice, and there he did um, the things that environmental lawyers do in firm practice in D.C. for two years, and then he made an inspired move earlier this year to go to Patagonia <coughs> as Patagonia's environmental advocate. And this, you heard in the earlier panel that there are new positions being created within companies that have some interest in um, environmental sustainability, new positions uh, uh, that offer environmental lawyers, among others, opportunities to contribute in, in new and exciting ways. And, and Avi is part of that movement, and he has moved with a company, Patagonia, that has a long history from its early days in um, developing uh, rock climbing and outdoor equipment, a long history of commitment to environmental um, uh, values, and in its present form, uh, that commitment is carried forward in a number of, of exciting and, and effective ways. And Avi's job is to provide leadership and strategy for that commitment to make it real, to keep it real, and to, to make sure the effort is effective and, um, and impactful over time. And he'll tell you more about that uh, with his talk. But it's my real and personal pleasure to introduce Avi to you. Thanks, John. Great. So I'm really grateful, one, for the introduction, mostly for the opportunity to get back to Charlottesville and to spend some time with you all. I, I as John said, um, got uh, my law degree here in 92. Actually, one of the reasons I came here, I don't know if it still exists, but there was an Oceans Law and Policy Institute, and so I got um, also a, a master's degree in marine affairs through the uh, uh, graduate school, um, environmental school, and my aspiration at the time, and in fact my first um, job inquiry was to the Cousteau Society as I fashioned myself one of those lawyers on a dinghy with blue whales, and um, it was also my first rejection letter. Um, uh, but nevertheless, things have, have worked out just fine uh, after that. So I'm going to use my time um, with you all just to discuss some of my observations on kind of where we are in terms of climate change, um, really focusing a little bit on uh, Green New Deal and some business aspects. Um, obviously, uh, these observations are shaped um, through two primary lenses. I think one is my um, service in government. Um, and when I started at the agency, um, Mike Vandenberg, who you heard from earlier, was Carol Browner's chief of staff. I still remember sitting in the outer ring of several meetings um, with Mike presiding, and then we had uh, John as uh, our general counsel. So it was a, a great place to begin one's career. Spent some time at the Justice Department as an environmental crimes prosecutor, and, and I think the most um, certainly notable experience I had was um, the privilege and opportunity to serve in the Obama administration, first term as its deputy general counsel, um, to a, a terrific friend and mentor, Scott Fulton, who was the general counsel then, and then uh, getting the, the nod uh, and um, 
also, the, importantly, the confirmation of the Senate uh, to serve as general counsel uh, in the second term, really uh, with Gina McCarthy there um, as administrator and uh, the directives from the president to uh, really focus on climate change. But then also the lens which I now have is in my current capacity as Patagonia's environmental advocate. So I see um, a little bit more clearly from the private sector uh, not only what can be done, but I, uh, I should say I have even more strongly held views on what um, should be done. Um, and, uh, and oftentimes there's a distance between what you can do and what you should do. And um, more and more I find myself being a little bit uh, preachy on the what should we do. And it's a little easier coming from Patagonia, um, but that doesn't stop my evangelizing on the topic. So you'll get a little bit of that today too. Um, I, I want to start out um, with two sayings or quotes that I think kind of animate the way I think about climate change. Um, and they're both ones uh, that came to me more recently in my time at Patagonia. The first is um, a great saying that I've often liked from Yvon Schwinnard, who's the founder of Patagonia. And um, for those of you that have not read it, he, he did write a really interesting book among many uh, called Let My People Go Surfing. But it's a story of, uh, it's, a, it's a great business book. It's about how um, Yvonne came to found the company uh, and how uh, enmeshed in it is uh, environmental ideals. But one of the things that he says there, that he certainly sent, said several times since, uh, sounds quite obvious, but if you want to do good, you actually have to do something. Um, and, uh, and we forget sometimes that there's this constant drive to, you know, I'm going to do something good today, and then you kind of sit back on your phone or your screen or whatever it is, and it, it's, it, it is a wonderful call to action, right? If you're going to do good, you actually do have to do something. And the second thing that um, I, I think uh, marries up quite nicely with that um, is also a quote I found uh, in that book, it's attributed to an unnamed Navajo medicine man. Um, and it says, we are the people who we've been waiting for. And you know, when you think about those two, for me, for climate change, it really is um, the call to action for us to do something. And when I hear people talk about the, the Green New Deal and you see our, our youth marching in the street, um, that's what I hear them saying. It's the, you know, it's a bit of a time is up now. We are the people we've been waiting for, uh, and we actually have to do something. Now, before I kind of talk a little bit um, about the, the Green New Deal and where we are now, I, I thought it would be um, helpful to do a little bit of a, uh, a rewind on a 20-year uh, story that, that helps me think about where we are today. And um, it's no coincidence when I found out that John um, would be introducing me. I changed the entirety of my remarks just to make sure I was mentioning John at the beginning of this story. Um, but, but it's where the story starts for me. And if you go back um, 20 or so years ago, John's time at the agency, John will remember the details quite well. And um, when I mess them up, you'll correct me privately afterwards. Uh, but Congressman from Texas, Tom DeLay, uh, in the appropriations process of the agency at that point in time, late 1990s, asks whether or not the agency has the authority to control greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. And keep in mind, 
you know, this is already six, six to eight years after um, the, the first assessment report came out from the IPCC talking about climate change. The UNFCCC, you know, the Framework Convention on Climate Change was underway. So you know, we're now six to eight years after all of that, and finally people are beginning to ask the question, well, is there existing authority to address greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act? And so John, uh, in the office that he led, uh, and I was uh, privileged to lead uh, much later, uh, ran through the analysis and issued um, a really quite famous um, opinion letter to the administrator in which John confirmed that yes, the Clean Air Act did provide uh, the requisite authority to uh, address and to regulate greenhouse gases from the electric power sector. That's what they were talking about at that time. And then um, the environmental community, I think, certainly um, getting wind of both that and knowing the, the urgency of the crisis, petitioned EPA in, the, in 1999 to actually start regulating uh, new motor vehicles under the Clean Air Act. And um, John's successor, Gary Guzzi, uh, comes out with some statements confirming that. Um, the agency is uh, presumably gearing up to do something. Um, and then the country has an election. And a uh, new group comes in uh, to kind of political power at the agency. And um, lo and behold, uh, the administrative process slows down, takes a different kind of turn. Now a number of states, Massachusetts, other states in the eastern seaboard and elsewhere, begin to get worried about their coastal communities. They begin to urge the agency to take action on greenhouse gases. Um, and uh, another general counsel, I think acting at that time, decides uh, that he will issue a very different legal opinion. Um, and this is one that said, no, in fact, uh, the agency does not have uh, jurisdiction to regulate in this area. A lot of pronouncements, it's all well and good for EPA to do research, but certainly regulation under the existing authorities is off the table. And so in response to that, environmental groups and states get together. Um, in the early 2000s, they uh, file a lawsuit against EPA to get it to act um, and to use the authority that it has. Goes to the DC Circuit um, and uh, EPA wins, meaning those who thought EPA had no authority, um, as that was the agency's position there, prevailed um, in a split decision in the D.C. Circuit. You get a, a petition for cert to the Supreme Court in 2006, and then we have this, um, this great uh, decision, Massachusetts v. EPA in 2007. Um, it took, you know, eight years for the Supreme Court to confirm what John wrote in, back in 1998, that yes, the Clean Air Act does indeed allow for uh, the regulation of greenhouse gases under the requisite scenario, um, that the definition of pollutant, they said, is capacious enough to include greenhouse gases. So um, 2007 comes out, Supreme Court uh, kind of confirms the authority, um, and shall we say uh, there was not um, a rampant effort to run with that uh, in 2007, but then we had an election. And so uh, I came in with the uh, new Obama administration team in 2009. 
among the first things we began to look at is what should be done in the wake of the 2007 Mass VEPA. And one of the very first things that we did under Administrator Lisa Jackson was to um, look at the science and come out with what was then called the endangerment finding, the new scientific predicate and confirmation that these mixture of uh, six greenhouse gases was in fact um, uh, creating an endangerment to um, you know, human health and welfare, and in fact that the um, emissions from motor vehicles was contributing to that endangerment. And so we began the regulatory process to uh, regulate greenhouse gas emissions from our mobile sources. Um, but uh, the biggest source of emissions um, was then what I think it was even back in the 1990s, and that was uh, stationary power plants. So fast forward a little bit now, 2013. Um, I remember this quite well. President Obama goes to Georgetown University, sweltering summer day, predictably, you know, wiping the sweat off his brow, uh, facing a large group of young folks uh, on the lawn there, and gives what many of us consider to be one of the greatest environmental speeches ever given by an environmental president. And he talks about how um, we're the first generation to feel the effects of climate change, but the last generation that can do anything about it. He says that he refuses to condemn us and our children to a planet that's beyond fixing. And he announces uh, his climate action plan. And part of that climate action plan is to uh, direct the agency to finally do regulatory standards to control greenhouse gases from power plants. So um, I'm there. It's one of the first things that I get uh, the opportunity to do as um, the, the new general counsel in 2013 as we begin to um, have listening sessions uh, open to the public. Just a remarkable um, way of engaging, I found, um, with the public. We, we, I went to the one in D.C. Senator McConnell uh, came, among others. He uh, provided his views uh, on whether or not we ought to regulate. But it was um, uh, just a, a great display of um, engaged citizenry. Um, you had, you know, a, a, a dais like this with three uh, career officials at the agency, uh, and you had people um, in high school coming in, uh, you had uh, older folks coming in, lawyers with their papers, people reading poems. Um, I believe uh, some of the comments were delivered in song. Um, but uh, all, all, I think, in many ways informative, and so EPA puts out its Clean Power Plan proposal. Um, to which we get four million comments, the most of any uh, that the agency has ever done. Um, side note, that summer that uh, the agency puts out the uh, Clean Power Plan proposal, I had the opportunity to lead the EPA delegation to Beijing in what was then called the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, and we had um, negotiations with our Chinese counterparts on climate, um, and I gave a, a speech in Beijing, just open to the public. And the degree to which, both at that um, public speech and in the private negotiations, 
Um, the Chinese community was aware of a regulatory proposal put out by EPA um, was astonishing. And, and one of the things that it, it, it told me is that American leadership on the issue of climate change um, was uh, and is paramount. That uh, I believe um, that it was those regulatory proposals that um, groundswell of activity begun at the time in the Obama administration that catalyzed a lot of the progress that led the international community um, to sign the Paris Accords. Um, so come back to the United States, we um, issue the Clean Power Plan, certainly a lot of fanfare amongst um, uh, some communities. Uh, and then predictably, uh, within 60 days, we are in court in the D.C. Circuit litigating the case. And we had uh, uh, industry on both sides. Um, we had states on both sides. I think at the end of the day, 47 or 48 of the 50 states um, were on one side or the other, which is, to the best of my knowledge, still um, the largest number of states participating um, together uh, in a regulatory action like that, just to give you a sense of um, uh, everybody's positioning and involvement. Um, uh, we ended up before an en banc D.C. circuit. Um, an interesting aspect of that was um, it was, in effect, a, um, uh, there was a leadership void. The chief justice of the D.C. circuit at the time was Merrick Garland who had just been nominated by President Obama uh, and essentially sat in stasis without a hearing um, and could no, not participate in the briefing of the Clean Power Plan uh, because uh, of that position. And so uh, for the duration uh, of the litigation, Merrick Garland um, was essentially uh, sitting on the sideline. Um, we then uh, began to litigate the case uh, and in a fateful day that I will never forget sitting in the administrator's office uh, worrying about Flint, Michigan and the drinking water crisis there. Somebody comes in to me, hands me a note. I'm sitting right to the right of the administrator uh, and tells me that in a near unprecedented way, the Supreme Court has just voted to uh, stay the implementation of the Clean Power Plan. This is long before the D.C. Circuit has had an opportunity to render its opinion. Um, I will say that that was probably, uh, and certainly tragically, the last vote ever cast by Justice Scalia, who passed away um, two days thereafter. And so at the end of the Obama administration, um, we are left with a clean power plan. Uh, I like to think uh, both lawful, uh, well thought out, and putting us on pace to meet our nationally determined contribution at the Paris Agreement. Um, and now uh, its implementation is stayed uh, while we've got judicial review. Um, and then we have an election. And everything changed, of course. We then had a new Justice Department that went into the D.C. Circuit, and whereas uh, months earlier, we were eager to have a ruling from the D.C. Circuit about the legality of the Clean Power Plan and, and move it along to address our climate crisis. We now had uh, filings where this administration was saying we need to take a pause, we need to slow down, 
we're going to rethink this, we're not sure where we're heading with this. Um, the D.C. Circuit uh, obliged, uh, and uh, for months nothing happened in the litigation until predictably, uh, because we knew where the president was heading with this, uh, the administration proposed and just this past summer finalized a repeal of the Clean Power Plan, put their own uh, substitute rule uh, in place, um, and now we are in certain ways back to where we started. Um, we are uh, getting geared up in the D.C. Circuit to once again um, litigate these cases. And so you ask yourself, or certainly I, I ask myself, like, what's the, what's the moral of the story? What's the point of going back 20 years and kind of rehashing what we've been through when we need to think about going forward and, and the Green New Deal? And the reason that I tell it um, is because 20 years after we looked at existing authority to control discrete emissions from an arguably small number of sources in this country, something that EPA um, is really set up to do, um, we are in many ways back where we started. Um, rudderless, I think, on federal climate policy, uh, and certainly from a government standpoint, um, in great need of a dose of uh, leadership and certainty. And we're going to have another election soon. And um, there's a lot of talk about, well, if we can just, you know, kind of change who's in office, we'll either go back to what we were doing or we've got all these great new plans. Um, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I know exactly how this is going to play out. Um, you can substitute the next climate plan for the clean power plan, and there will be entrenched interests on both sides that will litigate it, um, and it will take some period of time to get through. Um, I mention this uh, as despondent as I may make it sound, not because I'm giving up on government. In fact, to the contrary, I'm a firm believer that we cannot, cannot solve our climate crisis without government action and intervention. Um, I, I don't think the private sector can do it alone. Um, individuals can make differences. Um, I do think that there has to be uh, government policy, uh, government regulation, government investment, government uh, leadership uh, to really drive things. And, and I should say as well, um, it does not only need to happen at the federal level. Um, the states are in many ways uh, the greatest havens for innovation when it comes to environmental regulation. Um, and unleashing the capacity of states like California or New York or Washington or others um, to really figure out what works um, in their communities, in their states, uh, and be um, uh, tutors in a way for the federal government, I think we ought to do that as well. Um, so I don't want to give up on government. I think it's necessary. But it's a sober for me and a very serious reminder of the duality of potential and performance, um, where the potential to do good does not always lead to um, a, a good performance or a good environmental outcome. Um, just as it was difficult and uncertain and messy and political to get to where we are now in 20 years, 
um, it will be the same going forward. Um, so it's not enough to deal with our crisis. Um, now, the Green New Deal uh, is a government path, right? If you think about um, what's been proposed, goes a lot beyond uh, what we have uh, tried so far, but recall the opening phrases of the Green New Deal, um, and you know, a paraphrase, but it says recognizing the duty of the federal government to create a Green New Deal, right? Whereas the federal government led mobilizations during World War II, and the New Deal created the greatest class that the United States has ever seen, uh, the House of Representatives recognized that a new national, social, industrial, and economic mobilization on a scale not seen since World War II and the New Deal um, is needed. It's needed to provide jobs. It's needed to provide unprecedented uh, prosperity and economic security. It's needed, importantly, to counteract systemic injustices that we have lived through in decades in this country. And so, you know, the, the, re the resolution is go forth federal government, have a 10-year mobilization period, and, um, and achieve the objectives of this resolution. And so when I start out and I think, um, you know, how far we have come uh, and, uh, or not come, if you will, in 20 years using existing authorities, and then I throw this um, uh, lofty, uh, Green New Deal on, on board, it makes me wonder what are we setting ourselves up from for. Um, but I will tell you that uh, in a bit of a confession um, that I think we have to push for a Green New Deal. Um, part of me, certainly with the, the inside experience I have, uh, recognizes all of the criticisms of it. How can we possibly attain this? It's too big, it's just a grab bag of a bunch of you know, lefty desires, um, it's too much, we don't have the coalitions, we don't have the consensus, um, and, and I'm not sure that I would disagree with any of that. On the other hand, the crisis is so important, um, and when I think about what we've done with the existing toolkit and what I can foresee happening if we simply go back to that do loop, um, I tell myself it's not okay, it's not sufficient. Uh, and so I, I do think we need to, uh, in many ways, go big here. But I don't wanna get um, kind of held up by focusing right now on what's the pathway for the government to do a Green New Deal, because for me, um, what's also important is that other lever that we need to pull and we need to pull hard, and that's in the private sector. Uh, because as messy and as slow and as uncertain and as political as the government can be, the private sector has the ability, um, if it wants to, uh, to make choices, to make changes that are certain, that are faster, and that are more durable, not susceptible to the vagaries of political winds. So a lot of the attention, in my judgment, needs to be focused on what companies can do. Um, and so you ask yourself, well, what does this mean? What does the Green New Deal mean for business? Senator Markey, um, who is one of the strong proponents in the Senate for the Green New Deal, has called it a framework for exerting external pressure on industries. And he also said that it was 
a framework for internal corporate operations for every industry and could be used to guide their discussion going forward. So you ask yourself, really, what are the roles? Um, and, and let me just make the point that private business, um, to the extent it wants to borrow from or learn from the Green New Deal, cannot afford to wait on the political process to conclude with respect to the Green New Deal. It needs to step up, uh, call it whatever it wants, but start taking its own private sector bold steps. Um, and, and maybe, and this is the way I've started to think about it, just as many of us who view a lot of governmental programs and regulation as a kind of safety net for what the private sector can't deliver, uh, in many ways this is where the private sector needs to act as the climate safety net for government because we know that government has failed us so far um, and the people of this country and the people of this world need a safety net that can best in many ways be delivered through private industry. So we need private companies to respond and to do the right thing. So is this, is this possible? Is this um, realistic at all? And, and there are a couple of signals to me that, that we're at a bit of a turning point that my answer is in the affirmative. Um, for one thing, you know, this is now an era of the Sunrise Movement, the Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, Friday's, you know, climate strikes. Um, we've got a Green New Deal again. People have, have talked about that. We are um, just a couple years removed from uh, the very first time in which climate-related proxy resolutions past majorities for some of the major oil and gas companies, so the investor community is starting to flex its muscle. Um, two or three months ago, the business roundtable, not known as a bastion for um, left-wing politics, uh, came out with a new statement on principles of corporate governance. 181 CEOs signed on, and basically they said for the first time in 20 years that their <coughs> ideas about corporate governance um, no longer revolve solely around the idea that corporations are meant to serve shareholders al alone and that the purpose is simply to maximize shareholder value, that lo and behold, companies have, surprise, surprise, an impact on the planet, um, and they have stakeholders and communities that they really ought to care for as part of their economic operations and enterprise. It's their customers, it's their employees, it's their communities, and yes, by the way, it's the environment and the, the obligation from a corporate governance standpoint to contribute to um, a sustainable environment. And if there was ever a need for that, I would say it's in the area of climate change. Now, it's incumbent upon those 181 CEOs, and it's incumbent, I think, upon all of us to hold them to this, um, that they actually begin to walk the walk. Because, um, uh, you know, what I don't want to have happen is this turn into another we are still in. Now, the we are still in movement is great, right? It happened in the, the aftermath of Trump's first announcement two years ago that the, the government intended to withdraw from the Paris Accord. And, you know, I felt bad for 24 hours, and then I got really elated because all of these companies are signing on. We're still in. It was really great. Um, and if you go to the website now, there's something like 2,200 companies that are signing uh, on. Um, but if you 
look a little bit further on that website, there's a drop down that says, well, here, you know, companies, you can share with people your climate commitments, you know, that go beyond your signature and that we are still in. Um, suffice it to say, it's a minuscule fraction of the companies on the We Are Still In that have identified uh, any changes whatsoever they're doing with respect to the control of carbon emissions, much less making those transparent um, and available for the public. So um, it's great that the Business Roundtable and these major multinational corporations have figured out that, um, that uh, companies actually have responsibilities um, in an economic and a communal sense to uh, stakeholders to include the environment in their communities. Um, it will be, I think, incumbent on us all to make sure we watch and see that that step gets translated into action. You then have a growing movement of benefit corporations. So I don't know how many folks are familiar with B Corps for benefit, but, but Patagonia was uh, the first benefit corporation in the state of California. Um, this is a growing movement and group of companies uh, in states who have benefit corporation rules um, where the, the uh, principles of incorporation include um, verification and certification uh, as to certain uh, environmental um, and social and worker standards. Um, and so that movement, which is now several thousand strong and 60 companies, is growing. Uh, and not surprisingly, I think really on the forefront of uh, private uh, industry leadership when it comes to climate change. Um, so let me just tell you a little bit about um, what we're doing at Patagonia, just to give you a sense of, I think, um, what is possible and what we ought to expect uh, from other companies. Now, Patagonia um, is, is, is and has been, I think, by design, a leader uh, in the kind of environmental and social uh, movements for a business. And uh, we are now 100% uh, renewable energy in our own and operated facilities in the U.S. I think about 80 or so percent internationally, working, of course, uh, I think in the next year to be at 100%. Um, but for us, that was the low-hanging fruit. I think for many companies, uh, being able to kind of tout yourself as, you know, we just source our energy and our light bulbs come from wind and solar, it's, it's great and it's important. Um, but uh, the real enchilada, if you will, is their supply chain footprint. Um, for a company like Patagonia, our carbon uh, uh, emissions come not from the sale of the clothes in the stores or online, it comes from uh, growing the materials, the, the organic cotton, uh, that's my shirt here, um, and, and using the materials and weaving them in our supply chain. That's where the reductions need to happen. So Patagonia has set for ourselves uh, an ambitious, um, but a goal that we will achieve uh, to be entirely carbon neutral from our supply chain uh, in every tier of our operations by 2025. Um, and this is going to mean uh, working extensively in countries in Southeast Asia and elsewhere um, with our farmers uh, and our plants to make sure that sources of renewable energy are available um, in our supply chain. Uh, and it's going to mean doing things that put us on a path, hopefully one day, to what I call climate positivity, which is to say that you're actually, through your operations, um, 
sequestering more carbon than you are emitting. And one of the ways that we're doing this is through uh, piloting projects and farms uh, dealing with regenerative organic agriculture. I mean, we like to think about the fact that um, most of your clothes are actually grown. I mean, you think about it like food, food and fiber. Um, and so figuring out ways of regenerative practices to actually sequester more carbon in the soil from other industries um, as part of our cloth clothing making business is something uh, we think is, uh, is in our future um, and attainable for others. Um, so uh, that's what we're doing. But again, working with other companies, I think it's really important to uh, make sure that they, they stand up too. So I, I want to uh, kind of conclude and then really uh, open it up to uh, any discussion and questions that y'all might have. Um, by uh, observing, uh, again, that, that I think for us to make progress in climate change, um, there are really only three levers um, of action that you can pull. One is the government lever, uh, and, and um, although I want to make sure that we fully utilize every existing tool that's out there, um, having been a, a part of this, at least in my own uh, time at the agency, um, I, I have seen both the successes and, and uh, in fact, the failures of that process um, and, and none of the institutional barriers um, that have prevented that from taking off, if you will, those institutional barriers are the things that are part of our body of environmental law and, and frankly, part of what makes us uh, such a strong um, uh, nation, which is the ability to challenge your government uh, the ability of courts to weigh in on the legality of governmental actions, the same things that have propelled us in environmental progress have also been used, um, in many cases not inappropriately, uh, to slow things down as well. And I think that uh, no matter how we embrace a Green New Deal, and again, my own view is that the time is now to push a more aggressive agenda uh, in politics, um, uh, and, and elsewhere in government when it comes to the climate change, uh, I also realize that many of the things that have slowed us down before um, will remain in those paths. So we need to fight it, but we need to understand that government is not the answer. Individuals, by the way, uh, can make a heck of a difference. I didn't really spend a lot of time talking about this, um, but I have seen uh, studies done by organizations that have looked at six or seven human behaviors like eating more of a plant-based diet. Doesn't mean giving up your red meat, it just is eating less, flying less, buying carbon offsets, getting engaged, looking to uh, electrification of vehicles, things like that. If 10% of Americans adopted this suite of six or seven behaviors, um, we could close, if not eliminate, the gap between where we are heading and where we have committed under the Paris Accord. So individuals can act, um, but businesses have an obligation to. And again, I, when I think about um, the greatest opportunities out there to address climate change, um, I, I think it, it is going to come in the private sector. Um, and my hope is that um, you know, through marching in the street, through casting votes, through investor pressures, through different recognitions of, of uh, corporate obligations, um, and, and through, uh, I, I think, um, kind of pressure from within uh, that we're going to finally see the private sector community stand up uh, and no longer be laggards to government but be leaders. So let me end there. Um, 
thank you all. The discussions today I thought were really fascinating. Um, I don't want to end on a down note. Uh, I do think that um, we have to be optimistic because um, there's no other way. The last quote I guess I'll say, just because uh, Yvonne Swinard is really full of some really excellent <laughs> quotes, uh, is he you know, always says the cure for depression is action. Uh, and if you are depressed at all by the state of our politics or depressed at all by the state of uh, our climate affairs, my only exhortation to you is to act and to do something. So thanks. <laughs>